Welcome to Family Addiction Coaching, a podcast about families supporting a loved one with addiction. Each episode will provide insight into a real family's experience, what families find useful and not, what is available in the community, and what would help make their journey easier. Similar to what happens in our coaching service, we'll discuss how families have encouraged their loved one into recovery as well as their own family recovery. We'll also discuss harm reduction, an especially useful approach for those with no current interest in recovery. I'm your host, Patrick Doyle of Family Addiction Coaching. With a master's degree in social work, I'm licensed by the state of Massachusetts and comply with the strict code of ethics of the National Association of Social Workers. I was not going anywhere because I knew that that would be the end. You still have a great deal of love and affection for him. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was mixed with anger and frustration right. and hurt and pain and, you know, all of those things. But, but you know, I look back at those times. I have a ton of pictures of him having really wonderful times of the, with the kids, even in active addiction, uh, us having really wonderful times as a family. And even the day before Bill went into his last rehab, we went to the Eagles game. It was my first Eagles game ever. Um, and I am a huge Eagles fan, huge football fan. And, and it's still wow. one of my best memories. We're very excited that this episode features a conversation with a remarkable woman named Trish who is the wife of a person with a history of substance use disorder. Trish will be sharing with us her valuable perspective and experiences supporting her husband in his journey to gain health and recovery. While her husband has been in sustained health and recovery for about two years now, prior to this, he went through an experience of needing several different treatment programs, Meanwhile, Trish was by his side, supporting him, trying to help any way that she could, and also raising three young children, two years old and younger. So I'm really pleased and very excited and eager to hear about the insights, the perspectives that you have to share with us. Trish, thanks so much for participating. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is definitely a privilege on my end. I think it'd be a good place to start if you could give a maybe a brief overview of your experiences with addiction before your marriage as a youth, growing up in your family of origin, any kind of experiences. Was there not much of an interface with addiction? And then gradually describe when you became aware of addiction impacting you and your life in your marriage. So for the ma majority of my life, I really did not have much interface at all with addiction or really kind of any substance use. Um, neither of my parents struggled with anything. I mean, there is some alcoholism in my extended family, um, but not something that I was really directly faced with throughout my life. My younger brother um, used some drugs um, in his late teens and early 20s. Um, I don't think that he in any way struggled with a substance use disorder. He didn't need any treatment to overcome it. He kind of spent a couple of years doing some wild things and then stopped. Um, and that was really my only experience with drugs. I, um, Bill and I laugh all the time at how it's even possible that we came together. I'm as straight-laced as they come in terms of that kind of stuff. I never, 
I didn't have my first drink till I was 23. I've never done any drugs at all. Um, wow. It's just not, yeah. <laughs> I just, it's just not something I think for me, um, and it's, it's fascinating to kind of even just look at different personalities and how they work with substance use disorder and um, alcoholism and things like that. I'm not a thrill seeker. I'm not, I'm not really interested in dangerous things. And I've always been the type of kid that like the fear of consequences worked for me. So, um, you know, my family talked about alcoholism in the extended family. So in my mind, it was the easiest way to avoid that is just don't drink or don't do drugs. And then I won't even have to worry about it. So I just never did. My father is a police officer. So that may have also (laughs) um, played into my lack of um, real interest in things like that. Um, I just kind of grew up. I just didn't grow up around it. Um, It just wasn't anything that even my friends in high school, I guess I just picked the right or wrong, the right group of friends because um, none of them really drank or did drugs or any of that kind of stuff. So I wasn't really surrounded by it. So I think that may, that naivete may have played into, well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was just, I was definitely naive to it. Um, so when Bill and I met, I was, we were both older when we met. I was 32. He was 39 um, when we got married. And he was in recovery at the time. Um, so I knew that he had had a history of using drugs. But by the time I met him, he had been um, substance-free for several months. Um, he was about a year, over a year, almost a year and a half into recovery when we when we married. Um, and so it was something that like I knew was a part of his past, but was so foreign to the person that he was that I couldn't actually imagine it. Like I couldn't. It was almost this thing that I knew intellectually but never really connected with because it was so different than the person that I met. So when we met, he was living in a recovery house. He was just coming off of several years of being homeless and in jail and, and rehabs and kind of coming off of all of that. But like I said, he was so different than the way that he had described himself when he was using substances as, you know, this living on the streets and things like that. So. Again, it was something that I intellectually knew about him and knew was a part of his past, but it wasn't anything that I actually experienced. We got married um, pretty quickly after we got married. We decided to start having children or trying to have children at least. Again, I was 32. He was 39. We kind of were like, it's now or never. <laughs> yeah, And right. uh, so we we tried, and, and it for about two years um, we were trying, and, and I was not able to get pregnant. And so we'd actually – started to talk about looking into adoption um, before realizing how insanely expensive uh, private adoption is. Um, right. And during that time, you know, we got married. I was, I'd finished graduate school. Sorry. I was in graduate school when we got married. So by the time two years into our marriage, I had finished graduate school. He was finishing up an undergrad degree and actually starting graduate school all at the same time. Um, And like I said, we were looking into private adoption and then all of a sudden um, some friends of ours who did who struggle with substance use disorder themselves found themselves in a situation where DHS was coming and taking their children and they asked us to be to take care of their children. And at the time there were four of them and we kind of were like, absolutely not. We can't take four children, Um, but we wanted to be supportive. We wanted to be helpful. And they 
had just had a baby boy. Um, he was about two weeks old when um, DHS got involved with their family. And again, out of complete naivete and not really understanding infancy, we decided he's the one mm. that can't move. He'd probably be the least disruptive to our lives. So we'll take uh-huh. we'll take the baby. Um, and there were other family members that were able to take some of the older children. So we became overnight foster parents to a two-week-old baby boy. So that started a a year of um, intense stress that I think ultimately culminated amongst many other things in Bill's relapse into youth. Um, so we we got this two-week-old baby boy. We became foster parents and, and started dealing with all of the, the stress and the chaos that comes along with being foster parents and dealing with the system. I'm actually a social worker that works with youth in foster care. So that was my day oh. job and also yeah. what we were dealing with at home all while again bill was in school about four months later found out that i was pregnant with twins <laughs> um, oh wow so now, pardon pardon me trish no go ahead you were it sounds like you were thrown into a situation with that baby very abruptly you didn't you had no time to prepare for that oh no yeah we um we got the phone call kind of looked at each other and said, how can we say no, this baby? Um, we had, I had actually been trying to help the mom a little bit. She'd been living in a shelter when the when her son was born, um, and I'd been trying to help her kind of navigate some of that and, and get a little and get more stabilized and try and find supports for them. And when that all kind of fell apart and they were like, we really need help, um, yeah, it was I Bill and I looked at each other and I was like there's this baby boy that that really needs someone to care for him and we knew that there was no way we could say no, but it was literally like we went over and picked him up and then drove to Walmart to buy a crib <laughs> cuz we didn't have we had the car seat that she, and the stroller that she gave us um and that was all that we had. Wow. And, yeah. And so the we, baby was 2 weeks old. Yes. So it really literally all of a sudden you've got a a child with you. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I remember in those first few nights, you know, obviously two week old, he's not sleeping through the night. Um, you know, both of us kind of looking at each other, like, what have we gotten ourselves into? Um, thankfully yeah, I have a, right. you know, I've been in my job for a long time. Um, I've been there for almost 10 years now. So it was, you know, a good six or seven years at that point. So they were really, um, and you know, it was working with foster kids. So they were very, um, supportive of us having foster children. Um, Bill's parents were supportive. My mom dropped everything and drove. My parents live in Virginia, but she drove up here to stay with us for a couple of weeks to help out because, you know, obviously there's no maternity leave or anything like that. Right. Um, and, you know, most daycares aren't taking infants that young. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a really intense adjustment. Um, and we went into it, you know, fully expecting it to be a short term thing. I've known, you know, this family for a long time. They were struggling and going through a hard time, but we fully expected them to be able to to get things together and just wanted to be able to provide that level of support for, you know, taking care of their children. And so they knew that they were cared for while they they took the time that they needed to be able to to care for the kids on their own. Um, ultimately, that unfortunately did not happen. Um, but uh, we kind of went into it with that expectation. Um, and yeah. so the first like four or five months, I would say, you know, we're we're an intense adjustment, obviously. Um, yeah. And then again, you throw in finding out that you've got twins on the way. It became 
you know, that just that whole year was very intense. At the same time, there were a lot of really wonderful joys. Um, we, he's, we really bonded with, um, the baby very quickly. Um, and I think we, in a lot of ways fell into being parents very quickly, which was both really wonderful, but also really difficult because he wasn't ours. Um, and so we were constantly faced with this, this dichotomy of, um, you know, wanting to be parents and trying to be parents and then having this child that wasn't really ours, but we needed to love like our own, but that yeah. we really cared for his biological parents deeply and wanted to support them and love them. And then on top of it, finding out that we are going to be parents, you know, biological parents, and there's two of them. Um, and what are we going to do with that? So, you know, there's just, there were just a lot of dynamics going on around all That's of that. It's a lot of change. Yeah. It's a lot of yeah. change in a very short period of time. Yeah. And I will say the, the other difficulty is during that, that whole year, there was a lot of up and downs with our foster son and, and with his family and with the case, you know, there were, it started out, there were weekly visits and we were driving him into the city. We, um, we were living outside the city. Um, no, I'm sorry. That's wrong. We were living in the city this time. We moved outside of the city right before the twins were born. So, so we were still living in the city and driving him to visits with his parents. Um, but his biological father was incarcerated pretty soon after, um, the kids came into foster care and his biological mother did okay for a while, but then she started to really struggle so that we would have weeks, if not months of like no visits and no real contact with the biological parents only to have them kind of pop back in and be interested. And so there was just a lot of, a lot of back and forth and a lot of navigating through a really difficult system during that. A lot of instability. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, And then again, you know, also preparing for twins. And we decided maybe seven or eight months into having our foster son. So I was probably like four or five months pregnant at the time. Um, We were living in Kensington and we decided that that's not where we really wanted to live to raise our kids. Um, We Uh had an incident one night where um, we heard gunshots outside our house and we actually heard them through the baby monitor. in our foster son's room and we were just kind of like, yeah, this is not where we want to be. So we decided to start looking to move outside the city. So in the midst of all of that, we're also trying to sell a house and and find somewhere to live outside the city. And actually this is Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah. So we were um, living in Philadelphia at the time and then looking to move maybe just outside. Bill was in, um, seminary in a school just outside the city. And so uh-huh. the other discussion was, you know, if I'm going to be at home with three children, it might be good to be close to where he's going to school <laughs> in case yeah. I needed something. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, that first, it was intense, but I would say what really, that year wasn't actually that bad, as crazy as it sounds. Where things really got difficult was right about the time the twins were born, we moved so that was there was that was kind of a crazy time. We had both developed a really strong bond with our foster son and there had been a period of time where it looked like his parents were not going to be able to do what they needed to do and they were talking about terminating their rights and making him available for adoption for us. All of a sudden his biological father was released from jail and started to express a desire to be reunified. And so 
we were again put back in this place of we've had this boy for a year. Bill especially had become really close to him because right around, by the time I was about a little, about six months pregnant, um, it became really difficult for me to do a lot of the day-to-day caretaking of an infant. You know, I couldn't even, (laughs) I couldn't lean over the crib to get him out of the crib because my belly was too big at that point. So um, Bill had really taken on a lot of the parenting. So, I mean, he was getting up with him in the morning and if he got up in the middle of the night, Bill was up with him and they had just, just developed this amazing bond and Bill had just fallen head over heels in love with this boy. And, and, you know, and then, and, and actually, you know, wondered how, how is it possible for me to, how am I going to love my own children as much as I love him? Um, You know, they just that deep relationship. And then right at the time that our twins were going to be born, you know, this, our son's biological father gets out of jail and is like, yeah, I think I want to work towards reunifying. So we're, we're right when we thought we were going to maybe be able to move forward with adopting him, everything kind of took a quick left turn. And it was at the same time that the twins were born, which obviously heightened just a lot of stress and pressure in our lives. We went from no children to three children in less than a year. Um, Yeah, that's um, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was really intense. And, And financially, we were struggling. You know, Bill was in school, so he wasn't really working. I had been working full time, but now I was on maternity leave. And so financial uh-huh. pressures were pretty intense. And so at some point during that, and I'm still not 100% clear where, but at some point, Bill relapsed and started using drugs again. Um, he I resumed think. use. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, I can't really speak fully to to what that was. I think he's still doing a lot of um, discovering the full um, everything that led to that. But I think it was it was just kind of the culmination of everything led to this period where he was just like, I need relief. And I know I know a way to get a relief from this. He Mm -hmm. so sometime around the birth of the twins is when he had the reoccurrence of use. It was a good probably three, four four months before I really figured out what was going on. Um, Uh, We, which is not uncommon. Yeah. Well, and I mean, he, you know, I knew he was struggling with depression. Like it was, like I said, it was the same time that all of a sudden we have to take this boy who had been our son for a year to visits with this man that he didn't really know that didn't really know him. There was a lot of uncertainty about whether or not his biological father was kind of like, yeah, I don't really know if I can handle three kids, but Um, I have to, I basically, it wasn't really clear whether or not he really wanted him or if he just kind of had this sense of, if I want my other kids, I have to kind of take him too. And I don't mean that in any way negative to his biological father. His biological father was a really great man that really loved his kids, but didn't really know Micah. Micah is our son, um, and didn't really know him and, and, you know, he was trying to get to know him at the same time that Bill is having a really hard time with the idea of we might have to let him go. And I was having right. a hard time with that, too. So, um, yeah, so I just I felt I thought Bill was maybe struggling with some depression. And it wasn't until I started seeing, you know, I was seeing money kind of disappear from our bank account. But again, yeah. he would always come home with things, you know, so I kept telling him, like, you're spending too much. We don't have this money, but he's coming home with stuff. So I just thought he's like trying to make himself feel better by buying things for the kids and stuff like that. So it wasn't until I really started to pay attention to 
how much was disappearing from the bank account and what was coming home that I started to connect some dots that something was going on. Uh-huh. And and really when the bank account was drastically disappearing. And for Bill, you know, that when his his first time using, you know, he went from using drugs the first time to like homeless on the streets within six months. I mean, it just, it's a very quick progression for him. And that's what happened again. Um, not homeless on the streets, but he went from kind of using it that one time to get relief to this is a, a full-blown um, addiction that he needs really serious help really quick. So it was about, it was about four or five months before I kind of confronted him with there's something going on and I really need you to be honest about it. Um, and he still wasn't immediately honest, but eventually pretty quickly was just said, I've gone, I've gone back to using drugs. Um, at that point, I think he was still convinced that he could control it. He certainly tried to convince me that he could. Um, uh-huh. and it was, it was a little bit longer before there was a realization of this is not something that he can just stop doing that he really needs help. Yeah. I would say he it was a probably maybe eight or nine months into his reoccurrence of use before we both got to the place of okay we something we need help because this isn't he you can't stop on your own yeah and and could you describe a bit the impact on you? You were aware of his having issues with, related to substance use before you saw it come up again. It was your first time seeing him as a person with active addiction. How how would you say it impacted you in terms of your thoughts, feelings, what was going through your mind? Gosh, I, I'm not even sure if I know so much. I I imagine you were scared. Definitely scared. Um, very confused. I mean, so much of those first, um, the first probably year of this is so much of a blur because again, you know, we're dealing with our oldest son in foster care. I have two infants that are, you know, six to nine months old. I'm working full time. Bill had dropped out of school at this point, but I just, I'm, I think at that point, I don't even know if I acknowledged any emotions or any feelings. It was so focused on we have to do something. We have to figure this out. This can't. And a lot of it was intense fear of honestly of losing Micah um, because I knew that, you know, he was in foster care. Right. They could come and take him at any point. And I knew that that would I that would destroy Bill. And ultimately, I thought that would destroy our marriage. I don't know how we could recover from losing a son and losing a son essentially because of substance use. Um, I don't, I don't know that Bill could recover from that. And so I think I was, I was in this, there was, uh, there were, yeah. So the initial phase was one, work really hard to keep it a secret. So nobody knows what's going on. And two, a very naive hope that maybe we could make this that this would all just go away, like that we yeah. could just, all he needs to do is, you know, do some cold turkey it, let's just lock you in a room for a couple of days, you'll be fine. And then, you know, so I mean, that didn't last too long. I, I pretty quickly realized that that wasn't going to work. Um, but I think that was and my pardon, initial. 
Yeah. It, pardon me for interrupting. From what I know of Bill, my guess is that he was sincere, devoted to you and the kids, committed to making this work. I have no doubt in my mind that he was going to do any anything necessary to make this right and to get back into a recovery. Again, keeping it private, keeping it personal so as not to jeopardize the, the stability of your family. In the foster situation, it's totally understandable. Yeah. We did pretty early on. Gosh, I, Bill is so much better at the timeline than I am. We did reach out to people. So he was in seminary um, at the time, and we were members of a church um, in Philadelphia and pretty quickly reached out to some people at the seminary. Um, and again, it goes back to what you were saying about Bill and, and the way he was. It was it, He reached out solely because he knew that I needed help. He knew that he was... I mean, I don't know. He certainly wasn't was not admitting to me at this point that things were kind of out of control, but I think he knew that they were and didn't he didn't really know what to do for himself, but he knew he needed to try and, and get some help for me. So he reached out pretty immediately to some people at the seminary and, and fully acknowledged um and he, you know, I'm I've I've gone back to using drugs and I my wife needs help. It sounds like maybe he was a little more concerned with you than he was with himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say that was pretty, that was pretty standard. (laughs) That's pretty standard across the board. Maybe he's still like that. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's him and that, yeah, that's, Yeah. yeah, that's one of the, you know, the myths of substance use that both of us are working so hard to try and challenge this idea that people who are active in addiction only care about themselves. Um, I certainly experienced two and a half years of someone who was in active addiction that um, I would say, you know, spent a lot of time trying to figure out how he was going to avoid withdrawal, um, but not because he was selfish um, in any way and, and spent just as much time trying to figure out how he could help and support his family um, while he fought to get better. So Yeah, and, and that brings up a great point, Trish. Addiction really is unique. I mean, there are some commonalities with the addictive illness for different people. Also, to a great degree, it's a unique experience for everybody who, who's got it. Nobody's the same. Right. Bill had that. He he never lost his compassion. He never lost his priorities, his sense of, of caring and working as hard as he could to make everything right again. Yeah. No, absolutely. There's no, yeah, he never lost a a bit of that at all during this whole time period. And that's really, you know, looking back on, on it at the time and realizing what a risk it was for him to go to people, um, some of whom he didn't really know that well. Um, but you know, people that he thought and hoped would be helpful and being willing to kind of expose himself in that way to them um, in the hopes that they would be able to support us is pretty incredible given that's, the state. That's pretty unusual. Like you had alluded to, oftentimes there's a trying to keep things private and personal and trying to take care of that without having to have information about that leak out somehow. Right. With a lot at stake as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, you know, the people that he reached out to were not really sure how to respond. And so they just didn't. Um, And that Uh was really that was really difficult. Um, 
we reached out to some people at his seminary, reached out to some people at the church. Um, our church did, the church did help us financially because um, we'd gotten into a really dire situation in terms uh-huh. of not really being able to pay the bills. And they were able to step in and, and provide some really helpful financial resources. Okay. But that was really all they could provide. Um, uh-huh. They did not, uh, they weren't able to help in any other way. Um, and actually, I just, I don't know if I'll ever get over the irony. Bill was doing an internship with the um, ministry at the church that works with people in addiction. Um, and he was actually mm-hmm. fired from that for lack of, for his inability to do the work. And he was fired via email and never heard from them again after that. Um, really? Yeah. So it was really... Um, I'm definitely very grateful for the financial support, but it was really difficult during that time to realize that even when we did reach out to individuals and people, um, you know, I try and give them the benefit of the doubt that they really didn't know what to do, just unfortunately, because their response with not knowing what to do was to just do nothing. Um, And so we kind of were left out on our own. um, Yeah. And and to to contrast substance use disorder, to contrast that with heart disease or hypertension, if Bill had come down with an illness such as that, most likely he would have been offered a medical leave. You would have had casseroles brought over to the house. They would have held his job for him for a certain period of time, I imagine, with it being substance use disorder. It sounds like you got none of that. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, even to the point where, um, you know, initially we I thought it was depression. And so we had gone to the church asking for some maybe counseling resources. Um, And then once we identified that it was substance use disorder, we actually there was a a Christian counselor that was starting a Suboxone program. And so we reached out to them um, and asked if there were, you know, if we could maybe look into getting Bill involved in Suboxone. And the doctor was like, oh, I don't have any experience with that with heroin. I only have experience with it. It must not have been Suboxone. I don't know. He just, he didn't have any experience with it with heroin. And he was like, and I, I don't know any Christian counselors that do. And because there weren't any Christian counselors that do, um, the church wouldn't pay, wouldn't help pay for it. Um, And we were not in any financial position to be able to pay for it out of pocket. Um, So we were, we lost that opportunity. Um, wow. Yeah. So if, if it was for depression or for an anxiety disorder, it might've gone a very different way. Yes. Yeah. And as long as we were willing to see a Christian counselor, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. But because there was no Christian program out there that had been identified that knew how to deal with heroin use. And that was really, that was a really difficult time for me because this, this one doctor, you know, it'd come highly recommended. And I, that was the, that was, I think the first time that I got my hopes up that maybe there would be something that could work. And there was this doctor that our church knew that is just starting the Suboxone program. And we really thought Suboxone might be really, might be the way to go for Bill. And here's a a good way that's not going to take him away from us for a month. Um, And, and that fell through and it was really disappointing for me. And I think that was, at that point was the, the first time that I kind of, started to get scared for Bill. Um, And I started to realize that this was going to be a much bigger um, obstacle to overcome than I initially thought. And that this was much bigger than 
not that someone coming and taking our son is a small thing, but this was much bigger than someone coming to take our son. This was life or death for him. Um, right. And it sounds like it. you really ran head on into stigma and the stigma that society places on drug use, especially with heroin, yeah. the, the tremendous stigma. It was so heavy because it was heroin that the substance use specialist doctor couldn't do anything with it or wouldn't right. do anything with it. Yeah. So it's, it, it sounds like you were recognizing the need for professional help. You were trying to find it. Both you and Bill were trying to find it. And it sounds like you're trying to find it for both of you. Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely more, Bill. Um, I don't think it, it was a long time before I fully recognized what the effect was on me. I would say it wasn't until he was arrested the first time that I really started to realize how significant all of this was affecting me. I was so focused on we've just got to get him better, we've just got to get him better, um, that I, I didn't pay any attention to myself. And at what point, when he got arrested, how far was that into the future from where we had left off? That is a really good question. This Roughly. Is, yeah, I was going to say the timeline is so difficult for me. Um, Six but, months, nine months, 12 months? It was... Once he had resumed use? No, it was a long time. It was over a year. He is so much better at this timeline than me. But there was a good year of before he did over a year before he completed a full rehab time. So there were some detoxes, um, you know, stays in detox and then and leaving AMA and some things like that. But um, it was I know it was in March, but I can't remember. There were periods of admissions to residential programs. And yeah, for shorter like detox, like shorter times. Um not okay. not the full he never i don't think it was i remember it not being until around the time he was arrested that he completed his first third full rehab stay and in terms of ha the impact of this on you i mean a year and a half is a long time to be going through it sounds like it was a time of instability or unpredictability yes absolute unpredictability um i'm still still not really clear how we did it um it yeah. was yeah it was very difficult um very trying and it, it sounds like you were supportive you were basically supporting him getting back into treatment when he needed it so your focus was on him oh yeah yeah definitely him A and lot. the kids <laughs> yeah 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 then was there something about his getting arrested that changed that for you yeah, I finally had to tell people, you know, I had been able to, you know, other than the people that we had reached out to at the church or the seminary that, you know, had, by this time it just kind of disappeared from our lives. Um, I I had not told anyone. Nobody knew. My parents didn't know. His parents didn't know. None of my friends knew. There was a day that he went to buy drugs. And I knew that's what he was doing because he had been trying to go cold turkey and just couldn't do it and was overwhelmed and, and starting to feel withdrawal symptoms and was like, I've got to, I can't take this anymore. And so the plan, we only had one car. Um, and so the plan was for him to 
go and and buy the drugs and and get what he needed and then come bring the car to me so I could go pick the kids up from daycare. Daycare closes at six o'clock, six o'clock rolled around. He was not home yet. I got a call from daycare um, saying, you know, your kids are still here. Somebody needs to come get them. I was stuck at home with no way to get them. And so I finally called a friend of mine who didn't live too far away and was just like, I, this is a really long story and, um, I will tell it to you later, but I need you to come pick me up, um, to go get my kids because Bill's not here. Um, she's also one of the few friends that I, and we had a, so, you know, I had three kids in car seats at this point. And so she was also a friend that I knew had a big enough car. And I told her, I was like, I have two car seats in my garage. Do you have a third? And she said she did. So she said she'd come pick me up. Um, she was at my house within 15, 20 minutes and got in the car and I just broke down because I didn't know where he was. And I thought maybe he was dead. So I told her, I was like, I, Bill, um, started using drugs again. I, he left a couple of hours ago. I can't get in touch with him. He is not back. I'm scared something happened. Um, so while She's an amazing person um, and is a nurse, um, and so she knows a lot of a lot of the people in the area. And so she's like, "All right, let's start calling hospitals while we go get your kids." Um, and so we went. We picked up the kids. Um, as I'm calling hospitals, Bill calls me and tells me that he's been arrested. And so there was this like huge mix of relief that he was alive and then overwhelming fear because, you know, not only did I not have any experience with substance use before this, my only experience with the criminal justice system was through the eyes of a police officer <laughs> with my, being my dad. Um, right. You know, so I yeah. go to immediate worst case scenario as well in terms of what's going to happen to him. Yeah. And so I went from, you know, not telling anybody to you know, having this friend of mine. And then I immediately called my dad um, because I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything. I was like, oh my gosh, it's Friday night. My husband's been arrested. Uh, I don't even know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what happens. I don't know what's next. And so I called my dad and just was like, Bill's been arrested and I don't know what to do. And my dad was, who lives almost eight hours away, was at my door about one o'clock the afternoon the very next day. Um, uh, and my, right up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, whew, sorry. Um, and my friend Jen, and, you know, I, she didn't stay with me that. Well, she stayed with me as long as I needed her to. Oh, I know. I remember now. She got me a rental car because, you know, Bill had just gotten arrested for DUI and had wrecked our only car. So she um, called and got me a rental van and um, paid for it for the first couple of days. So I didn't have to even think about it other than to go pick it up, ordered my kids pizza and helped me get them to bed. And yeah, so I I was kind of forced to, well, one, I was then, you know, put my kids to bed and Jen left and I'm just in this house, you know, by myself in shock, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, and having no idea what was going to happen next. Yeah, no idea what's 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 going to happen next, what the next the best thing to do is. At this point, I had been kind of letting Bill drive a lot of the decision making. One, because I just didn't know what I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what he needed. Yeah. And finally kind of getting to this point where like, okay, I'm going to have to this 
I can't just sit back and, and wait for him to get better. Um, this is going to have to, we're going to have to do this together um, and figure things out. So, um, yeah, so I certainly had a lot of tears that night. Um, but then also sure. like, uh, okay, now, now there's people that know, um, and we, we've got to come up with a plan. So in a lot of ways, that was a turning point, good and bad. Yeah. It sounds like the struggle of the previous year and a half, something wasn't working. Right. And so I can, I can well imagine there being some sense of, along with the fear, maybe some sense of relief or, I mean, at least something's going to change and maybe it'll change for the better. That, yeah. I mean, there was definitely a relief for me in, especially in my parents knowing I'm very close to my family. So that had been a really difficult thing over that time. I'm just not, I mean, I literally talk to my mom every day. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, having this like almost secret for so long, um, I don't think I've ever, I could barely contain, you know, when I was pregnant with twins, I think I, I think we told my parents like two weeks after I found out cause I just couldn't keep the secret. So that was very difficult for me. And then having a friend that was close by that, um, I knew I could trust and I knew that I could talk to, I think really changed a lot for me. It was clear that you needed to be more involved in decision making. I imagine being aware of clinical assessments, treatment plans, uh, getting some sort of help for Bill and what you can do to help him gain health and recovery. Yeah, I think that was where, I mean, I had been involved. Well, I mean, I had been taking him to to places I'd been involved in helping him like, okay, we need to, we need to find something. Um, I had been involved in trying to help him cold turkey it. Um, you know, there's the times that he convinced me that he didn't need to go to rehab, that he could just, he just needed a couple of days in the bedroom. Um, you know, I'd been around for that. I think it was, that was like the, I don't want to say I never got to the place where I was like, okay, now it's ultimatum time. But that was kind of the turning point of like, okay, well, one, now people are going to know. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, now this, like, like I, I, I knew it was lifer. I think it, I don't know that I had connected the dots that there was a, that there was an option between recovery and death that was not a positive option, which was jail. Um, I think that was the first time that I realized that this is not like an all or nothing, that there is a middle ground that's also a really bad solution that doesn't result in right. him dying, but is not a positive thing for him or our family. And I think that was the other kind of realization of like, this is not, I don't need to just prepare for his funeral. Um, you know, there's so much, there's so much more that could happen. Um, you know, realizing that, you know, he was arrested for a DUI and thank goodness he just had a parked car, but who knows what else could have happened with that. Right. Um, right. And, so, and, and pardon me for interrupting here. You mentioned that you helped him get through a couple of days of cold turkey withdrawal. It's interesting at this day and age for me to reflect back on my training as a social worker myself. For many years, we were told that there was no risk in opioid withdrawal syndrome and that it's really uncomfortable. Your stomach may get upset, but it's not a medical crisis. And in fact, it wasn't that long ago when managed care health insurance would start covering inpatient medically supervised withdrawal or opioid dependency in the context of addiction. 
And for many years, the health insurance would never cover it. It didn't meet criteria for medical necessity. They thought that it could be managed as an outpatient or not even medically managed at all. Was that a difficult experience that you saw Bill going through when he was doing it cold turkey? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it was it was absolutely horrific. Um, yeah, it is. It is nothing that I would ever, ever want to experience on my end, much less um, the way that he experienced it. It was absolutely horrible, horrifying. Um, just watching him curled in the fetal position for hours and hours, um, moaning and crying and um, not able to function except to get up to run to the bathroom or to dry heave um, into a bucket. I mean, it was just, it was horrible. And then it went on for two days. Oh, for, yeah, for two days until he finally just got to the place of, I can't do it anymore. And, and every time I was in the same place, I was like, I can't either go, go do what you need to do. In other words, he needed to get an opioid to control those symptoms. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was, and and I like looking back on it. I just I feel so horrible because there were times that um you know, I I was like you have to call we you the first the first time the I was like you have to do this cold turkey. We can't we can't afford any more <laughs> detoxes. Right. We can't afford these things. Like you just you have to just stop because I was just so naive and had no idea. You know, everybody describes it. Oh, it's the worst flu. You know, it's a it's a flu times a thousand. Yeah, and in my flu. mind, I'm like, you just, yeah. you, well, you have to suck it up and just deal with it. And um, not realizing, you know, I had um, I had food poisoning or something not too long ago. You know, that lasted maybe two or three hours, and I was ready to take myself to the hospital and ask them to, you know, um, to do something because I just felt so horrible. And I just thought, gosh, I watched Bill suffer through so much worse than this for days. Um, really? It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's indescribable. Um, and again, and I was just watching it. I wasn't experiencing it. So. Right. Having witnessed that as a, as a loving wife, of course, it must have been very difficult for you sounds like it was eye-opening that opioid withdrawal syndrome is a real medical crisis and so how understandable that so often people need to resume use because they can't take it anymore yeah no i mean we started looking into like programs where they'll like put you into almost a medically induced coma so while you go through the process because i just i was like i can't i can't watch him do this again um and I know this is, you know, on a somewhat lesser scale when he goes into detoxes, it's still the same. You know, I mean, he's still just going through these days of just feeling so horrible and miserable. And I know that there's a mental piece that he's talked about since then, you know, that I could I could see in a sense of that there was just I mean, he was breathing fast and there was just this constant anxiety that he expressed when he could even talk. And so I knew that there was a mental piece that you could just, you could just see it in him that was going on that he couldn't even describe that. I just thought, I don't know how he's ever going to be able to do this. Wow. It's just, yeah, it was so overwhelming. Um, Yeah. Well, gosh, there's a lot to this. (laughs) Yeah. What was it like for you 
if we put the focus a little bit more back on you, Trish, and your needs and what services, supports were available to you. Number one, it sounds like you and your husband have both been through a horrendous experience with addiction. And what has it been like for you? You also describe how hard it was to confide in close family and close friends that you carried the secrets of addiction within yourselves and told virtually nobody there was a period of active addiction for quite some time. That must have been incredibly difficult. If we look at what's available, what your needs were, I also understand that it may be hard to identify what your needs are even now. And that's what addiction does to families. It takes the focus, maybe not entire focus, but so much of the focus is on the patient and supporting the patient getting into a recovery that it's very common that spouses and family members really lose sight of their own needs. Um, what is it that you need as a loved one of someone going through difficulties with addiction? And what was available? What, what were you getting? What was your experience like? Um, well, I got basically nothing. Every, um, again, I'm not great with the timeline, but over an 18-month span, Bill did 16 detoxes, six Three of those led to the full-time 30-day rehab stays. Oh. Um, so, you know, figure 18 months, 16 detoxes, essentially at least once a month he's going into detox. Um, so those are residential detoxes. Yes, yes, inpatient. Um, yeah. You know, other and other than his last, obviously his last stay, <clears throat> before that he says that he never made it more than about three hours out um, before using again. I wasn't always aware that quickly. Um, some of them I was, some of them I wasn't. But um, so, you know, during that time, you know, again, the initial ones is just like we've got to figure something out. Um, I was not really that aware of what was going on. It was just so focused on let's get him somewhere, let's get him better and move on. I really kind of lived in that world right. for a little bit. Um, putting out a fire like yeah yeah that's a great way to describe it just like let's just put out this fire and let's move on to the next thing um once i started to realize that this was much more significant um i i tried to educate myself um it's it's interesting you know i'm a social worker um i have a right you know intellectual cursory knowledge of substance use and of addiction um but in terms of well, I mean, I feel like we as a society don't even really fully know how to treat it. But um, right. in terms of figuring out how to treat it, what my husband needed, what my family needed, like I was in I was in the very, very early stages of trying to figure that out, trying to ask a lot of questions. Um, in the beginning, all of my knowledge came from Bill. All of it, you know, he was the one really? helping me understand things. Um, but, you know, I mean, the treatment, at least – I should say the caveat of the treatments that we experienced, although again, 16 detoxes over the course of 18 months, we experienced a lot of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty consistently, you know, I would take him and drop him off. Um, usually could not stay for the assessment because by the time, you know, we would get there at eight or nine o'clock in the morning and sometimes he wouldn't be assessed until 12 or one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and I was still working and we had three kids, so I couldn't stay with him during that time. Yeah. Um, and there was no staff there saying, oh, Mrs. Kinkle, please stay here. Oh, we, God, no, it would be no. nice to have 
or or what can you tell us? Uh, can you fill in any details or or do you need something for yourself? No, no, I don't think I ever I never interacted with staff in the initial you know, he would come in, I would help him with his bags. I would sit there, you know, sometimes I would try and sit with him for as long as I could. Um, but usually, you know, after a couple of hours of us just like sitting in a waiting room, nobody speaking to us, um, I would have to go. Um, he would have his phone and he would always text me uh, when he was going to be taken back for the assessment. Um, uh-huh. And... I would get a phone call to pay the bill. Um, they would say, we're accepting him, and here's the copay. And so I would give them the credit card number so I could pay the bill. Um, and then I would not hear anything for the next five days, um, usually. Um, there were a couple of times that I – there was one time very distinctly remember, because Bill had a habit of – He would usually go in on Monday because he could never, you know, you can't get into any treatment over the weekend. Um, So it was often Monday morning. Um, Sometimes it would be other days of the week, but um, often Monday morning. And he would go in and then by about Thursday, he would be feeling better. Friday is when the detox would technically be over. But there were several times that he decided to leave on Thursday because he was feeling better. Um, Uh And I would usually get a phone call that he was wanting to leave um, or that he was leaving. Um, the one the one that really stands out, um, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I remember being it being a time where I was very, very desperate and feeling like this one, this one has to work. I don't know how much longer I can do this. Right. Um, and I got a call from the facility, you know, they always called him William, which is funny to me. Um, but, you know, William is here and he wants to leave. And um, so we wanted to get you on the phone so you could talk with him. And it was really just a way for they I, I got a very clear sense that their mindset was we know she's going to be aligned with us. So let's get her on the call so the two of us can work together to try and convince William to stay. And um, I, you know, so they I talked with him they, you know, Bill was very agitated and frustrated, which is not a typical thing for him. So I knew this was, things were not going well. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, just like, let's just let's just make a deal that you you make it to tomorrow. Like, let's see how how you can do if you can just get to tomorrow. We got to that agreement. You know, it was a long process, but they got to the agreement. Bill left. And I was like, OK, I'll talk to you later. Um, got a phone call the next day. William wants to leave again. There's nothing more we can do. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Like yesterday we had this phone conversation where you talked to him. I talked to him. We, you know, we tried to really connect with him and she was like, yeah, we don't, we can't do that now. So he's going to leave. Just wanted to let you know. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, So um, no continuity. Oh, no, no, because that same facility, so he went to this facility twice. Um, They wouldn't let him come back after a second time. But that same facility, um, he went in and wanted to leave, and I said, I'm going to come down there. I'll come down there, and we can talk. So I drove all the way down there, got there, showed up, and I was like, you know, my husband is here. 
he's he's wanting to leave. I really think if I can just get a chance to talk to him, you know, we can really talk it through and, and he'd be willing to stay. And they're like, I'm really sorry. That's against our rules. We don't, you know, he's in the blackout phase. He's not allowed to have any communication with you. Meanwhile, Bill is on the other side of the door. He can hear my voice and he's standing there like, please just let me talk to my wife. I just need to see my wife. I just need to be reminded that things are going to be okay. Just let me see my wife. And they would not let us do it. At, wouldn't wow. let me see him, would not let him see me. Um, you know, they kept telling me, don't worry. We know that this is his second time with us, so we are going to tailor the program. He's not going to have to go through the same thing everybody else does. And I'm like, I just really, I really think it would be helpful if he saw me. They wouldn't let me do it, so I left. Um, the very next day, Bill showed up frantic, absolutely frantic at our house going, what's going on? Why are you leaving me? Why are you leaving me? And I was completely caught off guard. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not leaving you. I never said I was leaving you. What are you talking about? And he said, yeah, they told me that when you showed up, you talked to them and you said to tell him he needs to stay or I'm going to leave him. And, and that, that was not true. Oh, absolutely not. I had already made the commitment to him that as long as he kept fighting and kept working towards this, I would not leave him. Yeah. Um, I said, and, and there's no chance that a staff person could have misinterpreted or misunderstood what you were saying. No, no, because I they we, they never talked to me. The only thing that they told me was that I was not allowed to see him. That was the only conversation that we'd had. So they somebody made not, it up. Yeah, somebody when made it up made thinking it up. that that would, that would convince him to stay. And what it did was send him into an absolute panic, and he left immediately and came rushing home because he was terrified that I was leaving him. And the thing that really, really bothers me – I mean, there's a million things that bother me about that. But the thing that really bothered me the most was, you know, with substance use, the biggest issue is trust. And yeah. trust had already been broken in our relationship because Bill had gone through these periods of, of lying and, and manipulating because he was afraid to tell me what was going on and he was trying to hide it. Right. And so we were already in this place of trying to rebuild trust where I, you know, we were working on, you just have to be honest with me. Yeah. If you, if you, if you use again, that's okay. You just have to be honest with me. We're not going to be able to do this if you can't be honest with me. And we had been working so hard on that. And then here comes this facility that suddenly made me look like the dishonest one. Cause suddenly Bill is like, who do I trust? Do I trust my wife or do I trust this person who told me this is what she said? And in, in his state, he didn't know, he didn't know who to trust because he he was so confused and so lost and so and struggling so much and here they come in and the one thing that we had was our marriage and and they just introduced yeah. this not only was the program staff being deceptive and manipulative but how ironic i guess they were doing that to convince him to stay in the program but that was the very thing that forced him out of the program that's uh, shameful. And doing the very thing that they accuse people with substance use disorder of doing. You know, they're all liars. They all manipulate. That's that's part of the disease. And yet here right. they are doing that. <laughs> just it just right. it really it, it absolutely floored me. And it, it really it set things back. It was very difficult for both of us to um, to rebuild that trust um, from that place. Um so, yeah, so, I mean, our my experience in terms of these treatment facilities is 
Um, you know, I drop him off and then I don't hear from them again until either if he decide, you know, the three times that he stayed for the, um, the full rehab, you know, I would go to, they all require loved ones to attend a family education session, um, yeah. which they, they advertise as a session to learn about substance use. Um, really, it's just uh, an opportunity for them to make sure we know the rules of the facility. Um, but so I would either hear from them when Bill left AMA or I would hear from them when I needed to schedule my family education session. And learning the rules of the facility were basically maintaining control over the patient, control over the family, and there was nothing therapeutic or educational about it at all. No, I mean, I will say the last one that he was in there, the person that normally does their family education session wasn't there. So they had a guy that was like, I don't usually do this, but I'm filling in. And he was actually very helpful um, in, in describing kind of like the, at least the brain part of it. Um, and understanding, you know, how, um, substances affect the brain. Um, that was interesting and helpful. Um, although my husband being a nurse had already explained a lot of that to me, um, anyway, but it was, it was helpful. And, um, but that was, that was it. Every other one, yeah, was totally focused on, you're not allowed to bring drinks and, you know, here's what you need to know and make sure that you don't talk about these things around your loved one and make sure you're getting help for yourself. Always the, the final caveat, this is hard on you too. Make sure you're getting help for yourself. Oh, and, and a lot of talk about boundaries, make sure you're setting good boundaries that you're not enabling. enabling. Basically everybody's codependent. So make sure that you get help for your codependency. Um, those words like they're like nails on a chalkboard to me now. Um, I've heard yeah. them so many times. But um, so it's an automatic. I mean, they're automatically diagnosing you, quote unquote, with codependency, with enabling behavior without knowing a thing about how you run your life. Exactly. Yep. Every every single one and every every conversation, um, you know, every handout was um, how to identify if you're codependent, how uh, enabling behaviors to avoid um I mean, that's the only thing that was ever provided to me. And was that ever of any value or use to you? No, um, I think some are, you know, there are a list of things that I'm like, well, I don't do these things, so we're okay. Or there are things where I'm like, no, I I disagree with you that that's enabling or I disagree with you that this is codependency. Um, You know, I think a big, a big barrier that I faced um, that I was telling you about before was most of the things that I went to were really focused on parents of adult children with substance use disorder. So all of the resources, everything was focused on the idea that you are a parent, your child is here because they have substance use disorder. And so you need to learn how to set boundaries with your child. You need to learn to not have this codependent relationship with your child. and so there, there was, was something no, wrong with the family. Right. Yeah, the family but was by a part definition, of the problem. Yeah, by definition, with every family, there was something wrong with them. 
Absolutely. That was the complete 100% assumption. Um, and so when I'm looking at this list and I'm like, well, um, I can't separate myself from him. We are married and there is no plan for him. You know, there was a lot of like consider not allowing him to come home. And I'm like, why would I not allow him to come home? That's his home. There is no right. other home for him. Right. Um that's the and none of that, that was based together. on an assessment. It was, none of that was based on a clinical assessment of his needs, of your needs. It was no. just assumed. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was just kind of this is the way that it works with substance use across the board. Um, and so, and this is the way that it works if you are a family member. And that was, you know, that was that still is my biggest frustration is that it's a very, I mean, it's different for all of us as individuals. Um, But it is a very different experience for a parent of an adult child versus a wife or a husband um, or a brother or a sister. Um, Although I, I, you know, brother and sister and like those, those, they were considered kind of like outside collaterals, I think, by a lot of people. The real focus was, you know, I mean, you'll even hear them. I mean, you say like if your child is suffering from addiction, if you're here because your child, there's never, ever – a, you know, if your husband is here or if your wife is here, that's never like the default example. Really? The default example is always if your son or daughter is here, you know, you need to, you know, and setting those boundaries. And I and, and there were several times that I asked like, OK, well, I'm here because the father of my children, my husband, who I'm in a committed relationship with is here. What does that right. mean for me to have a boundary? And the only response I ever got was, well, that's what you need to get in your own counseling and, and figure out. And, and did I they was, help you get your own counseling? No, did no. they give you any resources? No. No, no. I mean, they would give me a list of Al-Anon meetings. And I would always point out like, okay, these are all in the evening. I have three children under the age of three. Um do any of these five? I found one Al-Anon meeting that offered childcare, and it was over an hour away. And I was like, I can't, wow. I can't make that work because it's in the evening, and my kids—they were little; they had bedtimes. And right. um, I mean, even just the logistics. I mean, it sounds crazy, but even the logistics of like being out late at night and coming home—I can't carry three sleeping children into my house by myself. So right. I mean, it's it's physically impossible for me to do exactly. some of these things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was there was literally I was never once invited to do a counseling session with Bill. I was never once. I, I, I think there was one time that they called me right at the beginning to just like, hey, you know, I haven't met with Bill yet. I just wanted to chat with you and get a sense of what are some of your concerns or what are some of the things that you and I was like, I don't I don't want you addressing my concerns with Bill with Bill. That's not I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that would be helpful. So I'm not going to share with you my concerns so that you can then turn around and take those to Bill. I would be interested in Bill and I talking through some of those concerns together, but it's not something that I'm going to provide to you so that you can then. And thankfully, that happened after I'd had several experiences with the rehabs. I think if that had happened the first time, I might have just kind of vomited it all out for them. Um, but I was I was cautious enough at that point that I was like, I'm not sure what you're going to do with this information. And so I'm going to I'm going to hold on to it until Bill and I are, are together having a conversation. Right. And then, you know, I would be willing to have that discussion with a therapist present. Right. And, Bill and, and Trish, 
Trish, it's, n- it's no surprise to me that it's challenging for you to identify your needs, for you even to remember some things that happened during this period of time, because everything about treatment and about family life was focused on person with the addiction. So much so it, you didn't get any education. It, well, the education you got was bad. It was erroneous. It was misinformation. It was disinformation. It was all blaming the family. It's no surprise at all to me that it could be challenging for a person in your position to be aware of feelings and needs because you didn't get anything. Yeah. No. And I mean, like I said, I, you know, we, I got to the point of desperation where I started asking. And even when I was asking, nobody could give me anything other than a list of Al-Anon meetings. It definitely wasn't part of their curriculum. They had nothing. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um because two, uh, not this past summer, the summer before, my friend Jen, who was my support and the one that helped me the night that Bill was arrested, she, um, yes. like I said, she's a nurse. We actually um, did a talk together at the Philadelphia Trauma Conference on um, what does it mean to support families um, in in dealing with someone with substance use disorder and, and what really? does it mean to, yeah. Um, and it was interesting because we had a lot of treatment providers that were there and, and we, you know, we gave the presentation and we used my experience as kind of an example, but we went through and, and kind of pointed out like here are areas where the treatment system kind of failed our family and where Jen as a friend and a support really stepped in and, and here are ways that treatment facilities can, um, maybe augment or and maybe change some of the things. And, and we got a lot of really, a lot of pushback from the facilities who were like, no, we don't have patients like you. That doesn't, that's not who we see. The people that come into our facilities don't have good families. They don't have, or a, a, one of the big ones was, you know, the people that come to our facilities don't have families anymore. And I kind of challenged them and said, you know, at some point they did, and my guess is they have been so – there's been so much of a lack of engagement for them that they just gave up. And so yeah. it's not that – it's not the failure of the person struggling with addiction, um, and it's not even a failure of the family. I think that is a really, really telling sign of the failure of the treatment industry to engage families that we have this massive population of people that are going into treatment that literally do not have any family to engage because I have a really hard time believing that we have this massive number of orphans in the country that don't have any family members that love them. I think it's more likely that they've been so burned and so broken by their loved ones struggle with substance use and not having any support and not being engaged that they just kind of gave up. As you described the messages that you were getting consistently, how you were part of the problem that you needed to change, Mm -hmm. that nothing that you were doing was useful and you had to turn everything around. And then these platitudes about codependency enabling, did you ever hear the recommendation or the term rock bottom, letting someone hit rock bottom? Oh, yeah. They've got to hit rock bottom. It's just, you know, they, they have to want it. You can't do it for them. Yeah, uh, you, yeah, you've got to let them, yeah, and, you know, rock bottom is different for everybody, but you've got to let them get there. And I did, I I pushed back on that because I knew, you know, there was a lot that I didn't know and a lot that I learned. But the one thing that I knew from the very beginning was that if Bill lost us, he, w- he would be dead. 
Yeah. I knew Bill needed I needed he needed hope. He needed hope that there was going to be something out there for him and then if we were gone that hope was gone and I was like that I will never take away from him. You know, right. again, I, I made it very clear to, to Bill, if he ever threw his hands up and was like, forget it, I'm not trying anymore, this is my life now, then yeah, I probably, you know, he couldn't stay in the house. Um, you know, we would have, things would have to be different. But as long as he kept pushing and trying, you know, I was not going anywhere because I knew that that would be the end. It sounds like you still have a great deal of love and affection for him. And, and even during that time you did. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was it was it was mixed with anger and frustration right. and hurt and pain and you know all of those things. But but you know, I look back at those times um, and and I have a ton of pictures of of him having really wonderful times of the, with the kids and and yeah. us having really even an active addiction, uh, us having yeah. really wonderful times as a family and even. You know, the night before, the day before Bill went into his last rehab, we went to the Eagles game. It was my first Eagles game ever, um, and I am a huge Eagles fan, huge football fan, and and it's still wow. one of my best memories. Um, you know, it was bittersweet because I knew he was going to rehab the next day, and there was this, you know, like a lot of the typical fears and things that come along with it. But uh, you know, he was so focused on you know making that such a, a a wonderful memory for me. That's very touching. He was certainly out of control of his use. He was still a contributing, valuable, loving member of this family. Oh, even during yeah. times of active active addiction. That's really remarkable. Yeah. Oh yeah. He he um he spoke uh, to medical students at Drexel today, so Oh really? He's been, yeah, he's been working really hard on the presentation and so yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Good for him. It sounds like the treatment facilities that Bill was attending were not giving him medication upon discharge. Is that true? Oh, yeah. So um, he, because he is a nurse and he's wanting to get back into nursing, um, he has to go through uh, the Board of Nursing in, in Pennsylvania in order to regain his license. And they have incredibly strict requirements around any kind of medication-assisted treatment. So other than Vivitrol, he's not really uh, permitted to participate in any, um, you know, buprenorphine, suboxone, methadone, any of that kind of stuff. So, um, really? Yeah. So unfortunately, like we, we talked um, for a long time about Suboxone, we both really felt like that would be a really good thing for him. Um, yeah. Not necessarily long term. He never saw that as being, but he felt like, you know, a, a six to eight week taper with Suboxone versus, you know, the five days that they do in detox would have been yeah. very much better for him. Um, but he was really set on, you know, he's, he loves medicine. He's very good at medicine. He's very passionate about medicine and he really wanted to get back into medicine and that right. was not gonna. And so he kind of was like, even if I can, you know, get on the Suboxone and be successful with that, if I can't have my career back, I don't really know if it's worth it. And so that's where we, yeah. so he, you know, he had to go with the abstinence based stuff, and, and, which made it very yeah. difficult. 
Yeah, and how absurd is it that the state's monitoring program refuses to allow a patient an FDA-approved treatment for opioid use disorder, and when for many people it's a superior treatment, and based on the description of what Bill had to go through, it sounds like it quite likely could have made a big difference. He had those 15, 16 residential programs and three hours upon discharge, he's got cravings and he feels the, the need to use uh, an opioid again. One can't help but wonder how things might have been very different for him. It sounds like perhaps he might have been an ideal candidate for that, medically speaking. Yet the medical system in the state will not allow the gold standard of medical treatment for opioid use disorder. How striking yeah, yeah, we've talked about that a lot. Um, and actually, you know, thinking back to, you know, 16 detoxes and how many times, um, you know, and, you know, a DUI and the number of times that I found him overdosed, um, what the potential outcome could have been in terms of, I mean, just, you know, he was at such high risk for death so many times and all of that could have been avoided had he been allowed to do, to be on Suboxone, but, um, it was just, it was not an option. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an absolute miracle, um, to me that we, we are where we are given all of the, the lack of supports that, that we both had when he was in treatment, the restrictions on the medication, um, the fact that, you know, the so many people that we did reach out to kind of disappeared from our lives. Um, and we were left with a very small number of family and friends that kind of stuck by us. Um, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of in awe of the fact that we're, we're both still standing. (laughs) Yeah, it is incredible and scary to think of all the times that he was at such high risk. That must be scary to reflect upon as well. And as we know, Bill's not alone. This is the nature of opioid use disorder. For so many people, their outcomes are so much improved with the options of medication with their treatment. This is the nature of the illness. And for the vast majority of the treatment industry, they treat every use disorder the same as if it was an alcohol use disorder. There's no individuality. I'm not sure how many times patients get actual medical clinical assessments considering different types of options, which is getting away a little bit from the family focus that, that we have. <laughs> um, but to bring us back to the family focus, what you're describing is the primary reason family addiction coaching was started because of the tremendous need to get accurate information, to hear options, and to feel supported, to not be blamed, to not be diagnosed as codependency, which is not a real diagnosis at all, to feel supported so that they can make informed decisions, monitor how things are going, and change their minds, or to make a change in the approach that they're using, And also in some situations, bring concepts of harm reduction into their relationship with their loved one. For, you know, a good year plus, you were practicing harm reduction. You were there for him. You were supporting him. He was there for you as well. He was there for the kids as well. You had, to a large degree, fully functioning family unit, despite his struggle with active addiction. 
So to educate families that everybody is different, everybody is unique, that it's not useful to make assumptions and to introduce concepts like enabling, to give bad advice to families, to lie to patients about wives threatening to leave if a patient doesn't stay in treatment. That's the reason why there is family addiction coaching, to give people accurate information and to also help them struggle with the decisions. No one knows better than you, Trish, how many weighty decisions you're confronted with, with addiction in the family. Providing that support in a place where families can talk openly and be met where they are at, not left there, but rather help lift them up with education, support and empowerment. If nothing else, at least they're feeling understood. They can make decisions and to get some trusted professional consultation. Yeah, I mean, that's the other that's the other thing that we look back on and wonder, you know, we, we wonder what life would have been like if we'd had the opportunity to use Suboxone. And, then, and we wonder what life would have been like if we'd had the opportunity to actually have us as a family engaged in in treatment and really if nothing else to explore and prepare for life whenever he returned home because that was that was always the the great unknown um Mm -hmm. you know he's away for 30 days and depending on the facility you either talk to him once a day or once a week and then you get to visit him for about an hour um but obviously i always had the kids with me um because they wanted to see their dad and so you know, there was never, you know, I go these 30 days where I don't have really any opportunity to talk to my husband at all. Um, and then he's coming home. And in the meantime, you know, I've been managing life um, for those 30 days. And I don't, you know, it's it's just fascinating how kind of all of that works. You get into one routine and then, you know, he comes home and that whole routine is shaken up. And 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 all of the emotions like the joy but the fear and the anxiety that comes along with um him returning home and and what do we what can we do differently this time than we did last time so maybe this time things will be different and just so many things that we worked through and processed through as a trial by error and realizing that trial and error <laughs> could have resulted in death is just really, um, really daunting to think about that if we'd had um, the opportunity to talk through things and maybe prepare for things a little bit more, um, how different things could have been. Um, right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I can't help but wonder how many, as you mentioned, how many marriages have fallen apart and maybe not even so much due to the active addiction, but due to our failure as a society to provide treatment, support, real education and involving the family in an appropriate way in a patient's care how we've really let families down. It sounds to me like everything that you've done every step of the way has been on your own gut instinct and you've been right. The harm reduction concepts that you were practicing during, you know, long periods of his active use, you did everything perfectly. Thank God that you had the intuition you knew what to do and you knew what was important and you were true to yourself and true to your husband. You were both true to each other. It's really incredible. Yeah, I don't know if I would. Uh, I, I'm sure I've made some bad choices or wrong choices um, along the way. I've certainly, um, you know, had moments of saying really mean and hurtful things 
um, and anger and fear uh, and, right. you know, and, you know, but I think, I think looking, you know, I do sometimes focus on, you know, all of the things that we didn't have going for us. Um, and, and it is amazing. Um, but that, you know, we also, I also am a trained social worker. And so there is some, yeah. some things that go along with that. I also had the benefit of, um, you know, a husband who really challenged a lot of the, the narrative of what you think of someone with substance use disorder. You know, when you, whenever you hear, you know, I had the benefit of being able to watch him be a really great father, even in active addiction. Um, and that makes, um, you know, I had the, I, I think a big, a big thing was when everything shifted from, it being this this thing that he was dealing with that he felt like he had to hide from me and that he had to keep secret from me to this thing that we were fighting together, yeah. even though there were certain things that only he could do, um, that changed a lot because there was no longer lying and manipulation. There was no longer all of those things. And so it was really, it's been really telling to me to look back and think, okay, so substance use disorder doesn't make him lie it's the fear of somebody finding out that makes him lie. You know, it's, um, he's not manipulating because he's using drugs and that makes him manipulate. He's manipulating because he doesn't feel like he can be honest about what's going on, but he still needs to get what he needs in order to survive. And so once we were able to get past that and that, I mean, that took a while. Um, but once we were able to get past that and it became this thing where, um, you know, he he worked really hard to trust me and I worked really hard to trust him and it became this okay he had a reoccurrence of use we need to, we have to figure out the next steps the fear was still there the anger was still there but it, the fear was not the anger wasn't directed at him the fear was not about it was about the disease yes exactly yeah. it was about the disease yeah. and it was about this like what part of this is completely it was it was really the realizing how much of this was outside of both of our control that really made it overwhelming for us um and then you know all the collateral consequences of you know the criminal justice system that we can't control the foster care system that we can't control um you know we ultimately um once bill started going to once once I realized what was going on and Bill started going into treatment, we were honest with our social worker, um, you know, our foster son social worker that Bill had had this reoccurrence of use. And we are incredibly lucky that we had a social worker that has a lot of knowledge and experience of substance use. And she said, you know, okay, we're going to come up with a safety plan. You know, there's going to be certain things you can't leave Micah alone with Bill while he's, you know, actively using and things like that. And we need him to continue to pursue recovery. Um, but we, we don't have to take him away from you. You, you know, you Trish can provide that safety and security and stability for Micah. Um, you know, we don't have to remove him from this home. Um, but there was still that, that, kind of fear out there of like, okay, but if Bill can't get into recovery, there's going to come a decision day. You know, it was like, we don't have to remove Micah, but we also can't adopt Micah while Bill is in active addiction. So we have right. to, there's There's going to come a point where Micah is going to need that final permanency, you know, during this time period, um, both of his biological parents 
went back to substance use and were not able to find recovery. And so, you know, they moved to terminate their parental rights. And um, so then Micah became available for adoption. But it was like, we can't move forward with adoption while Bill is in active use. And so... We all there was still like so while we had the fear of him being removed uh, eased a little bit there was still this but we can't move forward with the next steps and there's going to come a point where they can't wait any longer um, right you know so there's just there's just so many things that um, so many complicated things that were a part of it but I would say you know and yet that was a support as well that yeah was, it really was I that mean, was a reinforcer still having the opportunity being given the opportunity to keep the foster family arrangement going that may have become a very positive reinforcer for Bill to continue to try absolutely I mean I, I really you know uh, he Bill loves his family um, and loves me and he loves the twins there's no doubt um but there is a special really unique relationship that bill has with micah that i think if that if if micah had been taken from him you know and we'd even had the conversation at one point where you know i said i'm i'm really afraid that there's going to come a day where i have to choose between you and micah and bill looked at me right in the eye and said you absolutely better choose micah um, wow. and, and I looked, I looked back at him and I was like, I, I will, I will have to, um, yeah. you know, if it comes down to you or our, and, and, you know, and, and that discussion went further to, to be like, that does, that's not like an end all be all like, that's not like a, so you're cut off, but it would mean that he would have to move out and it would mean, you know, a lot of things would change. Um, if someone had, had, if we had gotten to the place where we had to make that decision. Um, right. And, and, and how many and, people in Bill's position might be inclined to fight against that, to hold on to staying in the family, even if it wasn't healthy, out of fear that it was going to just all collapse if they had to move out? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think that goes back to, you know, my experience with, with substance use disorder, both with my husband and then, you know, obviously it's it's a big part of our lives now. And, and Bill's met a lot of people in um, in treatment that we've continued to be involved with. And, and, you know, there's still just this, the disease certainly takes a hold, but there's still, the person is still there and you still see this person that genuinely cares. And, um, you know, I saw that up close and personal with Bill, but I've seen it a lot more with other people as well that, you know, yeah. you have this mindset that all they care about is the drugs and, and you hear all the time, right. you know, what person in active addiction, they don't care about anything else but getting their next fix. And that's just not, that's such a, a trivial way to explain someone that's really trying to figure out how to love and care for their people while they're trying to survive. Um, you know, nobody looks at a cancer patient as like, all you think about is chemo or all you think about right, is, this, right. you know, um, that's yeah. not it. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're definitely focused on, on, you know, getting to the next, um, you know, getting what they need so they don't have to feel the horrible, horrible, uh, you know, withdrawal symptoms. But it, yeah. that's not because they're selfish. That's because they're trying to survive. Yeah, it is a matter of survival. You really believe in your husband. Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, again, I, I think that was that was an easy thing for me. Um, but yeah, looking back on it, I realize how necessary that was um, because there were times that I don't think he believed in himself. Um, there were a of lot course. of times that I don't think he believed in himself. Absolutely. And so, of um, I do. I do think, and that's where again I go back to. Um, You know, I would never, ever tell someone, a a family member, what they should or shouldn't do. Um, I I don't, I have not lived this as anyone else. I've only lived my own experience. Um, But I will, I have a really hard time with the people making the recommendation of, you know, you need to let them go or you need to, um, you know, like you've said, hit rock bottom or, you know, let them go. And if, you know, if they make it, then they make it. But there's nothing more you can do um, because I, I, I really strongly believe that um, for as long as you have the strength to do it, you know, your loved one needs you to be that reminder of who they are because they get lost. They get lost in the disease and they get lost in it. And, and we have the, the benefit of the clear vision and of a clear mind to be able to look at them and remind them of who we know that they are. Um, right. And that's that's really what I kept, I tried to focus on is, you know, the man that I married and the man that I know him to be and the times that I saw that in him, even in active addiction, making sure to remind myself not to lose sight of who he is in the midst of the difficult times um, and then taking that opportunity as often as possible to remind him Um yeah. So, you know, he knew that, that there was something worth fighting for. Right. And and how important it is for us to help families remain together. Like the foster care social worker did, uh, that person really supported the family staying together. I suspect that other caseworkers might not have had that same approach. It's, it's such a nice story to hear about recovery and about persistence. You must be very proud of your family and of your husband for what you've uh, accomplished and, and what you've achieved. Yeah. Oh, there. Yes, that I am very proud of. Um, I'm, you know, and and going back to what you were saying about um, just how important it was for the family to be together. You know, my recovery um, really started after Bill got into recovery, um, Uh and and really, you know, once the once he was was in recovery and had a, a you know maybe a month or two of sustained recovery and i could finally kind of breathe for a minute um yeah. you know it it was a couple of months after that that bill was the one that identified that i needed support and that i needed help and he you know came to me with those clear eyes and clear mind and saw things in me that i couldn't see in myself and said you know you've been through a lot and I think you're having a lot harder time with it than you think you are. And I think you need to talk to somebody and it was a very loving, caring way to do it. Um, but you know, I needed to hear it because I, I had not taken that time and, and I don't know, you know, if, if Bill had found recovery, but we had separated or been divorced or we were trying to figure out how we were going to live these lives separately. I don't, I don't think I would have gotten into the recovery that I've had at the same time or the same rate or had the same amount of success if I didn't have his support um, along that route. And so, and I think that is, I think that's one of the things, I mean, if I look at him, there's just an endless list of things that I'm proud of um, in terms of what he is overcome and then what he's doing with his own experiences. But when I look at us as a family um, and I see the resilience in my children, um, 
they're incredible. Uh, yeah. But then when yeah. I see the the work that Bill and I have done together, um, then that's where again those those terms of especially that term codependency just makes me so angry because um, it it makes it somehow seem like a negative thing that I have a um, I mean, codependent, that, that I have a symbiotic relationship with my husband, that I have a relationship where right. he is dependent on me and I'm dependent on him, not for survival in the, although in some ways, yes, um, but not, I, I can exist without him, but I don't want to. And that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, that's what marriage should right. be. And, right. and I can, yeah, I can survive without him, but my life is so much better with him. Um, and I think that that's, that's what marriage is and that's what makes our relationship good. Um, and so I get really frustrated when anybody tries to tell me that, that that means that there's something wrong with us or yeah. wrong with our relationship. I think it's called love and commitment right. and patience <laughs> and strength and the ability to tolerate a lot of uncertainty and still find some hope for the future, find a way to make it work. I think it's called love. Yeah. And, and I'm that I'm, I, I think that's what I'm most proud of. Um, you know, we've battled, we've both, we battled, we really battled through together. Like I said, there's certain things that, you know, I couldn't experience detox for him. Right. Um, and there were, you know, obviously I couldn't even experience detox with him um, when he's in the facilities, but um, I had the opportunity to be the person that he always knew he could come home to. Um, and, yeah. you know, on the flip side, um, he can't take the, the experiences away from me and, and some of the pain and even some of the, the trauma that I'm still kind of working through. Um, but he can, he can walk alongside me with every step of it and be understanding with it and, and hold me when I'm, you know, need to be held and, and challenge me when I need to be challenged. And I think that's what makes me, um, the most proud. It's not necessarily what, we do with it, although I'm, in, like I said, I'm incredibly proud of my husband and what he's doing with all that he's been through. Um, but it's more of, I guess, who we are and who we're continuing to become through yeah. this experience that I'm most yeah. proud of. One gets the sense that you're so much stronger together than you would be apart. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that is exactly it. Um, and that's what, you know, I go back to that over and over again, you know, could I survive without him? Yes. I don't want to. Um, and I, and I, and I wouldn't, it would not, life would not be as full as it is and would not be as joyful as it is. And it would not be as, I would not be the person that I am without him. He challenges me to be a better person and he challenges me to be a better mom and a better social worker. And, um, and he does that, you know, just by being him. So, yeah, we need to be celebrating families for the inspiration that they provide. And we need to be finding ways to, I feel like I'm an anomaly and I don't think that that's really true. I don't think that, that I am. Um, you know, I tell Bill all the time when we go places and he, he, um, he talks me up for sure. <laughs> sometimes I'm yeah. like, you, exa- you're exaggerating. Um, yeah. but I, I, sometimes I come across as this like superhuman person that, um, has overcome these things. I mean, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and are like, oh my gosh, I never could have done what you did. And I'm like, that's not true. That's really not true. I think most of us, um, oh could have done what I did. Um, hopefully, 
we can work really hard so the people that do what I did can do it with more support and can do it with more um, education. Like, yeah, just can do it with more yeah. help than I had. But yeah. um, there's plenty of people out there that are doing it, have done it, conti- will continue to do it. Yeah. And we just need to find a way to do it so to help them so it's not as hard as it has been. Yeah, so it's not as hard because it doesn't need to be that hard, but also to save those families that don't fare as well as yours have, that don't stay together, that somehow they disintegrate. They don't remain together for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I mean, how many families out there are out there that could be where Bill and I are and just weren't because they needed a little bit more support that wasn't provided for them? Exactly. Um, Exactly. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And that's, yeah. that's, that's right. You know, I've been, I've been a little bit slower to talk about my story than Bill has been. Um, but what really motivates me and challenges me to be open about my story is that um, I know how alone I felt and honestly still feel, you know, like I, you know, I still go when I go to meetings, when I go to events, it's still mostly focused on parents whose adult children are struggling with substance use disorder, and I still feel like I'm struggling to find that community of spouses. Um, not yeah. that there's not a kinship amongst all family members, because there is. Yeah. I mean, I still yeah. feel I, I can still relate to the mom. Um, right. I can still relate to the dad or the brother or the sister, but there is something different about a wife or a husband. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm still struggling to find them out there. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, and so I'm hoping by being more open with my story, um, you know, I'll find more of them. I wouldn't be surprised if you do. Trish, you are an inspiration as I listen to you, and I'm sure a lot of our audience is feeling the same way. What you've been through and how you dealt with it, how you have stayed true to yourself and true to your family is really, it's inspirational. It's a, a real feel-good story. I want to also share that you're my hero (laughs) and your husband is also my hero. Yeah, he's mine too. (laughs) I'll I'll bet. It's a no brainer. And I've never met Bill yet. I've seen his advocacy work. I've seen how courageous he is in disclosing some incredibly sensitive experiences and also his truth, which is oftentimes flying in the face of conventional wisdom. And I don't really mean wisdom, but the way that traditions have been. He's just out there with his truth, even when I'm sure he gets a lot of criticism. He just stays true to himself and puts himself out there in instructive and inspirational kind of way. I've learned a lot from him by observing him doing that. So you're both my heroes. Oh, well, well, thank you. I don't, uh, yeah, I would definitely, I think my husband has certainly earned that. Um, that I'm, honor, glad you, but... I'm glad you said thank you. <laughs> it's important to take a compliment. Yeah. And so thank you for th- thanking me and I will say you're welcome in turn. I want to thank you so much, Trish, for your time and putting your heart and soul into describing what your journey has been like. It sounds like you are in a really positive healing process of recovery. And so I'm so happy for you and for your family for that. Thank you so much for sharing this. I have no doubt that it'll be helpful for so many people who listen to it. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And yeah, that's 
that's ultimately my hope is that there is a husband or a wife out there listening, wondering if they have, if they're doing the right thing or if they're on the right path. And I'm hoping that I can be an encouragement to them um, or a mother or a father, you know, that um, is having everybody tell them you just need to let them go. Um, and they just, they just can't. And I'm hoping I can be that support and encouragement that you don't have to. Um, and yeah. there is, there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dark or faint, um, no matter how dark the tunnel or faint the light seems. Um, you know, I, yeah, I do hope that I can be an encouragement and a support to people. Mm. I, so, I can assure thank you, you for giving you me that opportunity. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of family addiction coaching. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. We'll continue to interview interesting and strong families as long as there is a need for this information in the community. Make sure to visit our website, www.opioidcoaching.com. If you think you might want professional coaching for yourself or your family, Patrick Doyle is available. Have a peaceful day. <laughs>